I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. David Letterman used to feature a segment on his show called Stupid Human Tricks. Nowadays, because we humans apparently have graduated to amusements a little bit less Neanderthal, we just go straight to YouTube and we watch the incredible and amazing tricks, none of them stupid, performed by animals. Maybe this is why Letterman is history now. Well, anyway, I have often found myself on YouTube watching something like an osprey cam just to see that moment when the parent bird leaves or returns to the nest that is stunning to watch. And I have watched an octopus squeeze its way through holes that are too small for an octopus to squeeze through. I have yet to see, though, a sperm whale fold its rib cage down into a new shape to allow it to dive fathoms and fathoms down into the sea. Did you know that they can do that? The rib cage, it folds down. No YouTuber that I know of can capture this trick easily. Frankly, I don't even know how biologists have been able to ascertain that a sperm whale is capable of such a trick, such a feat. The rib cage folds down, the lungs deflate, the whole ordeal does not kill them. It actually helps them get along. Well, we're going to follow the sperm whale story down into the depths of the sea. And when I say the depths, I'm talking about the watery abyss where daylight does not penetrate. There are more stories to be told about this place than we have time for, but we're going to give it a go with Dr. Helen Scales, marine biologist, writer, broadcaster. Helen Scales teaches at Cambridge University and is science advisor for the marine conservation charity Sea Changers. She's author of a new book. I understand that as we're having our conversation today, the ink is scarcely dry on the pages of this new tome. It's titled The Brilliant Abyss, Exploring the Majestic Hidden Life of the Deep Ocean and the looming threat that imperils it. Helen Scales, welcome back to Constant Wonder. What a wonderful introduction. Thank you so much for having me back. It's a huge pleasure. What you don't know about me is that from the time I was a little tiny kid, whales were fascinating to me. I, I grew up in Southern California. We had gray whales off the coast. Never seen a sperm whale, though, have you? I have. I have. It was one of those animals that uh, it was on that, you know, you have that wish list, don't you, of things like one day I'll be in the right place and I'll see one of these things. And I happened to be um, out in the Gulf of Mexico on a deep sea research expedition and watch it show its face. Well, several of them at the surface, but a, a pod of uh, sperm whales. Um, and you, you, you realize that you, you can tell it's them pretty quickly. They're very strange looking things compared to other whales. There, there's that blocky nose of theirs, this square head is so distinct that as soon as one of them shows up, you know, near the surface, you can pretty much immediately tell it's one of them. And they have this weird um, lopsided uh, spout. You know, most whales, if they spout, they go straight up. And it's different shapes and things, but the, the sperm whale goes off to one side because they only have one nostril, which is connected to the outside. There you go. They only have one nostril. <laughs> That's very <laughs> connected to the outside. Yeah, the other one is is kind of internal, and that's uh, a key part of uh, what they get up to down in the deep ocean. But uh, yeah, only one they breathe through, so only one sort of nostril shoots off to one side when they come up to breathe. And so, if you see this sort of weird puff going off sideways with a whale, you've got a sperm whale. That's what it is. Yep. Did I get the business right about that rib cage on these animals? You did. Yeah, you did. And it's a really good question how we know that because I'm fairly sure there isn't. Um, Oh, I don't know. What would we need? Some sort of a scanning device, uh, you know, to see inside of these animals as they're diving down. I imagine it's anatomists who figured this all out, who've looked very carefully at the uh, um, the bodies of these animals, which we do know pretty well, because, I mean, a lot of people have had their hands on a lot of dead sperm whales, unfortunately, you know, through the whaling industry that's been raging for, you know, has raged for hundreds of years. You know, they got their hands on a lot of specimens. So I imagine in that time, that's one thing they worked out was that they have these presumably hinged, uh, hinged ribs that would fall down. And therefore, you know, that's, I guess, a, a pretty strong theory for what happens as they go down, because we know as the pressure increases, you know, human lungs would shrink to, to almost nothing too, but we'd be not doing so well if we went down as deep as uh, sperm whales go, I think. Well, I think we do want to eventually get to the story of how they survive at that depth for so long because they don't just in, inflate their lungs and hold it. We're, we'll get to that. But, but first, there's a little bit of history here, I understand. I intentionally started with the sperm whale because going down into the abyss is something that began, I understand, with some of those early whalers following sperm whales. 
Yeah, that's right. So it's really, I guess, the whalers were understanding something about our planet, which other people, and including a lot of scientists at that time, so we're talking kind of 18th, 19th century whaling, um, they figured out before really anyone else had cottoned on just how deep animals go in the ocean. It was around the same time that there was a pretty solid idea that you know the deeper down you go, life basically runs out. And you know, anything below a few hundred feet, perhaps a thousand feet or so, there's nothing down below that. And and why would a something like a whale bother going down that deep if there's nothing there for it to eat? There's no other why, why would it do that? And yet what the whalers saw. Um, and they knew only too well, especially back in those days, they were using huge long lengths of rope to uh, to attach to these poor animals as they were harpooned. And I believe I hear that I believe that these lengths came in standard um, sizes of about two hundred and twenty five fathoms, which is roughly thirteen hundred feet. Um, and they would need when they caught often when they caught a sperm whale on the end of one of these harpoons, they would need to tie together three or four of these lengths of rope because they would dive down so deep. Um, so it gives you this idea that these animals are going a long, long way down in the ocean. And and then what's more, when they come up and when these animals were, you know, sperm whales were finally caught and, you know, succumb, they succumbed to this, this human hunting came to the surface and were being, being butchered. You know, we find they were found to have stomachs full of these enormous squid beaks. Now, the hard parts of a squid, this kind of parrot-like beak, which is uh, um, how these animals feed. And, uh, and, and sperm whales have stomachs full of these things, indicating that that is what they eat. And presumably, we can therefore figure out that the, the reason they're diving down so deep, dragging all this rope after them, um, is to catch those squid. So those squid must be hiding down in the deep ocean too. So, so I guess that's the thing with those those whalers. I mean, yeah, they were they were hunting these animals on a huge scale, but at the same time, learning about this aspect of our planet that there's a lot more going on in the deep ocean than perhaps other people imagined that uh, was going on at the time. Well, I want you to give us some kind of a sense for just how deep the ocean can be and is at its deepest. I, I mean, the, the, the math that you just gave us, something uh, approximately 1,300 feet times uh, maybe three or four such lengths, we're not, exceeding a, uh, we're not even exceeding 10,000 feet yet, and the ocean can be a whole lot deeper than that. It can. It can indeed. So the average depth really is around about two and a half miles and I'm not very good at working out how many that, how many feet that is. That's a lot of feet, though, isn't it? <laughs> it's a lot of feet. And then it goes even deeper than that. That's just the average. Um, but if we take uh, the deepest, deepest parts of the ocean into account, so we have these incredible deep trenches which form. There's dozens of these things all around the ocean, particularly in the Pacific. They form when two um, tectonic oceanic plates slam together and one pushes down. Um, and you find these incredibly deep parts of the ocean. And, and the deepest one, you may know is the Mariana Trench, that famous, famously greatest depth of the ocean. And that gets down to just shy of about seven miles. Um, so the very greatest depth is, is there around seven miles down, which is really unthinkably big. If you imagine walking that distance, and that's how far it would take you to get to the bottom of the ocean, it's, um, it's truly, I think, truly mind-bending. You know, we Americans are often in the habit of stacking empire state buildings on top of each <laughs> other. But uh, we, could, we could just talk about the verticality, the, the, the depth. But there's another aspect here which that you talk about that has to do with how much of the Earth's biosphere is watery. I mean, this is just phenomenal. It really is. I mean, if we think about, yeah, you're right, this huge depth, I think it's something like 10 times up and down the Empire State Building or some such figure as that is the depth of the ocean. But we've also got the fact that it's um, the deep ocean, anything below um, around about 600 feet is what we consider to be deep. Um, that covers more than half of the surface of the planet. So, you know, multiply that all up and you get this enormous volume. Um, it's like it's a billion cubic kilometers. And my brain isn't going to be able to tell you how many cubic miles, but let's just say really enormous. Um, and if the well, I worked out that if the Amazon rain uh, river was going to fill up that volume of deep ocean from, from the 600 feet mark down, um, the Amazon River, the biggest river we have, would take 150,000 years to fill up the, the deep ocean. It's not how it happened. You know, that's not where the ocean came from. But just to kind of try and imagine that space. And, and, and we know that that forms something like 90 or 95% of the biosphere, the living 
space or the space available to living creatures on this planet. So, you know, so life on Earth is life in the deep, pretty much. We have, to, if we want to know about uh, what goes on, on on planet Earth, we absolutely have to look um, into this extraordinary realm of our planet, which is the deep ocean. Can you carve it up into layers for me? Because I know we can start with where the sunlight is, but there are different terms that people have used to kind of describe the different regions as you go further and further down. Yeah, and there's good reason for that too. It's not just simply so we can find our way around. It's actually as the as the light drops and as the pressure increases down as you're going further down in the ocean, the conditions change and we see very different types of animals living there. So we have the first sort of official zone of the the deep is the twilight zone. Um uh, and that b- begins at this kind of 660 feet mark, goes down to about 3,300 feet. And that's where there is still a little bit of sunlight left. It's a very dim blue light that's trickling down from above. All the other colors have been absorbed further up. So it's like, imagine, yeah, walking out on a clear night just after the sun has set and you look up at the sky and it's got that beautiful kind of deep blue, inky blue color. And, and it's it's like that in the twilight zone all through the day. So a bit of light, but not very much. So a shadowy, um, a shadowy world um, in that twilight zone. Um, below that though, basically at around that 3,300 uh, 3, feet mark, the sun is gone completely. So we enter the midnight zone where there's never any, any illumination from the sun doesn't make it into that depth. And you can keep on going down. And then this, uh, we get into what we call the abyss, sort of officially the abyss is around about um, around about twelve thousand feet, um, but that's a, that's you know the word abyss we use quite generally as well, just to mean kind of the deep ocean. But officially, it's around about that sort of depth. And then you know that goes down and down, and then we get into those very greatest depths um, in those trenches, um, starting at around about I think eighteen thousand feet, and that's the Hadal zone, which I love the the idea that it's named after the the Greek underworld. Of, oh, that's uh, where it comes from. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and things down there are getting pretty extreme in terms of the pressure and everything else. So it's definitely the most extreme part of the deep is the the Hadal zone. Well, let's talk about some categories aside from whales. Oh, no, let's stick with the sperm whale because we need you to explain (laughs) how the oxygen works in the blood because they're not holding their breath. They're not swallowing a lot of air and keeping it in their lungs. They can't do that. It would, I guess it would destroy the lungs. The pressure is just too high. I mean, they, they, it wouldn't be possible to keep anything inflated at the depths that they, they hunt at. We should say that, you know, sperm whales are spending three quarters of their lives down in the deep ocean, at, le- at least 3,000 feet, even down to about 6,000 feet. They're, they're, they're not the absolute deepest diving whales. There are others. It's a Cuvier's beak, beaked whale, which I believe has got the, the record for the deepest dive. But, you know, sperm whales regularly, you know, like routinely they're spending their lives hunting after giant squid um, down in the deep, deep regions of the ocean. And then they do this, yeah. You, like it's the the oxygen they bring with them isn't in their lungs. It's not as a gas, but it's it's locked away in their blood and in their muscles. Something like a fifth of the weight of an enormous sperm whale is made up of this huge volume of blood. And and they also have this um, a particular molecule in their muscles called myoglobin. We have it too, but we don't have nearly as much um, as uh, deep diving mammals do, including sperm whales. They have about 10 times as much of this molecule. It's a bit like the hemoglobin we have in our blood, which ho- again holds oxygen. Um, but they have enormous amounts of this stuff, so much uh, myoglobin, which locks onto oxygen, um, that it should, in theory, make uh, sperm whales kind of muscles totally just clog up and get stiff and they shouldn't be able to move. But we've discovered, it's been discovered that um, that form of that molecule is actually slightly positively charged. So actually it's kind of like a non-stick version of this really important molecule so they can stay supple, they can keep swimming and take down with them enormous uh, reserves of oxygen, which last them for like an hour at least, maybe hour and a half, diving down into the deep ocean. And they draw on that supply and you know eventually it starts to run down and they come back to the surface and it'll take them only a sperm whale needs only about seven or eight minutes at the surface to uh, to off gas this the carbon dioxide they've built up to recharge those oxygen stores and then they go back down again and carry on hunting it's incredible it really is they're just so well adapted to this life of hunting down in the deep and exploiting these amazing populations of, of squid that are hunting down there themselves so that they can, you know, they can survive and thrive. It's all rather wonderful. Well, now that you have solved the problem of the oxygen supply for the sperm whale, we've got to get to the hunting part. And uh, I know they have eyes, but if it's going to be midnight down there or darker, uh, what's darker than midnight in the, in the abyss? Uh, the, the eyes don't seem to have much of a function down there for hunting. 
No, that's it. This is the other big secret that uh, scientists only fairly recently confirmed as to how how sperm whales go about hunting. You know, there's lots of theories. Was it that they did they swim down and just kind of hang this quietly and wait for stuff to come by? Um, but it turns out they are basically the giant underwater equivalents of bats. They use echolocation. They are incredibly noisy creatures. They have these big, enormous noses, that blocky um, front snout on a, a sperm whale. is basically their nose, the biggest nose, I think, in the animal kingdom that makes one of the loudest sounds that we know of. And they, ha- they basically emit these incredibly loud clicks. Not a beautiful song like a humpback whale, but a very important click, which they um, interrogate the darkness with. And they're listening for echoes coming back from their prey. And particularly these squid, they've got those hard beaks that will be kind of, that will form a good echo. They have these, um, a lot of squid will have tough um, sort of hooks on their suckers, which again will reflect that sound. So the sperm whales are kind of pouring this kind of cascade of, of sound into the water below them and around them. And they listen back to the reflections from their prey. And then they chase after them. We've had um, studies involving kind of um, uh, sort of hydrophones and and, uh, movement sensors, which track these chase scenes through the deep. I mean, can you imagine? We now know that, um, that, you know, that sperm whales very much do chase after these squid and they have a bit of a run. (laughs) They try and get away and the, the squid follow after them, getting louder and closer. And then a, a very dramatic, I think, very dramatic thing happens at the last minute. As they're really zeroing in on that squid, the uh, sperm whale stops clicking. They fall silent because it's possible the sperm, the, the squid probably can't hear them, but they might maybe get some sense of ripples of that sound through the water. So the sperm whale falls silent and just uh, sort of zooms in the last few meters, last few feet to the squid. And then they'll perform a handbrake turn. Can you believe it? They will basically spin on a dime, suck in that squid um, and get their food, which to me, it's just the most wonderful chase scene I can imagine happening down there in the dark depths, all through the power of sound. How amazing is that? Yeah. Well, we've got now uh, a lot of talk going on here about a rather blubbery creature with a folding rib cage. It's for the most part, a kind of a rigid beast. And then we've got that squishy squid. I want to get into the squishy animals now, the ones that are uh, less rigid than a whale, because down deep, there, to me, it just seems like a contradiction in terms with all the pressure that you should have living things that are made out of wispy, just, you know, very fragile materials, kind of gooey stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of very gooey creatures. Um, it almost, that's a uh... Yeah, it's not. I would say it's it's one of the most common body forms. Whether you're um, there are fish that have lots of gooiness about them, um, but also just a whole range of incredible life forms, unlike anything we see anywhere else. That are real deep sea specialists. Do we call? I mean, a lot of them look like what we might imagine jellyfish are. Some of them are true jellyfish. Others are sort of slightly different, strange animals um, scattered across the the family tree of of creatures. Um, but yeah, jelly basically j- j- gelatin, a kind of a thin, watery bag of not very muscular, basically, yeah, just a watery body, um, is in fact a very useful way of being in the deep ocean for the for the reason that, well, firstly, yeah, there is all that pressure. And actually, that's not so much of a problem if you're made of jelly. You've got, it's coming in on equally on all sides. You haven't got any gas um, bubbles inside, which would collapse, you know, like the sperm whale's lungs. Um, so actually, jelly is okay in that respect. But the real thing it has going for it is that it's a very cheap material to build a body from. It's not a muscle that requires a whole bunch of energy to power it. Um, and it's, so it's not, not doesn't need an awful lot of upkeep in terms of energy kind of going in. So and that's really important because there's not a lot of food down in the deep ocean. It's dark down there. There's no sunlight to power plant life, which is what you know life out here on land is basically de- dependent on, is that energy coming in from the sun being converted into sugars by plants and, and so on. Um, none of that happens in the deep ocean. All they have is this thin trickle 
of what we call marine snow coming down from the surface. It sounds really lovely. It's these white um, fluffy particles which come down from the surface. Um, Basically, it's dead plankton um, as well as their droppings, all stuck together by this gooey stuff that microbes make. But it's a really important source of carbon and food. And a lot of those animals down in the deep, these jellies will actually catch that snow as it's falling. But there's just not, a, not very much of it. Around 2% of the food that's made at the surface in the seas, in the surface seas, falls down into the deep ocean. So it's a hungry place. And therefore, if you can evolve a way uh, to be really efficient about building a body and using that body, then, you know, you're going to be able to survive down there and you're not rushing around like a sperm whale that needs all that oxygen and all that squid to eat. Um, you can basically float there um, being this incredibly delicate jelly creature and um, and pick up your food from the water as it's falling past. Um, you know, it, and it works if you're down there. Not so much if you come back up to the surface, you take one of these animals, there's a thing called a, a dinner plate jelly that is an amazing predator of the deep actually. We know they hunt all sorts of other animals, but you bring one up to the surface and it basically falls through your fingers. It's that delicate, but it's it works works in the deep it's a, a deep adapted creature and you know we see worms with great big jelly um sort of bubbles on their body there's one incredible thing which has been nicknamed the pig's rump worm and you see one <laughs> and you know why because it does just look like a pair of little buttocks uh, floating around in the water and that again it gives it buoyancy too that's another added benefit of jelly it kind of floats there and for a worm that lives in the deep ocean same as these jellyfish why not? Um, that's what you need to do. Just kind of hang there, wait for the food to come along and you'll be all right. <laughs> so. You know, you have put your finger on something that, that I think informs a lot of the, the, the science of, of the deep, deep ocean, which is just the incredibly daunting challenge of any kind of inquiry where if you bring something to the surface, you either destroy it or you change its relationship to the world around it. You're not going to be able to see things behaving in their natural habitat because you can't get down there. It seems to me that this science is up against a huge obstacle of, of just observation. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, the wonderful thing about deep sea science and the place we're at at the moment, and I would say we're in this real, um, I'd say golden age of, of research, is because we have um, amazing new technologies which allow that observation in real time in the deep with these animals in their environment, behaving reasonably normally. I mean, we're talking about deep sea submersibles. Most of them remotely operated. There are some that humans go down in and we do have some um, in-person exploration of the deep. But by and large, like the majority of research in this way is being carried out by remote technologies. So we have these deep diving robots. You can send them down now into the deep with amazing cameras that feed high definition live footage up to the surface. You're watching in real time. Um, they have, you know, amazing lights, amazing sensors, things that let us see into the deep like we've never really had before. And sure, a big a big submersible with bright lights is going to probably scare a few of those deep sea creatures, but actually a lot of them don't seem to mind too much. And they will go about their, their time and go about their lives and we can watch on. So that is how we are getting an extraordinary view of life in the deep, how life behaves, what's eating what, how are those ecosystems working. Um, and the more we have those eyes in the deep, we also we have amazing sort of autonomous vehicles too, robots that go off and swim by themselves, taking pictures and come back and show us what they've seen. You know, there are so many ways in which we're looking in the deep, uh, in new ways in which we're seeing what's down there. And every time someone does, they'll see something new because of the huge size of the deep. And the fact that, um, you know, the, there's still so much we haven't looked at. You know, most of the time, people are going to completely new places that haven't been examined in, in detail before. And because the deep is so varied, there's so much different stuff down there in different places, different geology, different topography, different organisms. It's all just, uh, it's all waiting to be discovered, basically, which I find just so exciting. Having mentioned the fact that sunlight does not make its way that far down, that is invitation enough for us to talk about bioluminescence, the creatures that generate their own light. We're going to do that after a short break here on our show. We're visiting with Dr. Helen Scales, and she is author of The Brilliant Abyss, Exploring the Majestic Hidden Life of the Deep Ocean and the Looming Threat that Imperils It. We will get to those perils as well. Stay tuned to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Thanks for joining with us to talk about the deep, deep, deep parts of the ocean. We're visiting with Dr. Helen Scales, 
author of The Brilliant Abyss, Exploring the Majestic Hidden Life of the Deep Ocean and the Looming Threat that Imperils It. Helen, what about the fact that the creatures are generating their own light, and we may not even have our heads wrapped around why they do that exactly. It's not that they need headlights necessarily. Oh, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, we've, um, again, using these um, amazing deep submersibles to film the deep and to understand more about what's down there. Um, huge archives of footage from the deep have shown um, that around about uh, 75% of animals living down through the water column in the deep ocean are bioluminescent. They can make their own light. So it's almost compulsory. You know, life in the deep equals light making, basically. And I guess um, we can understand that from the point of view of knowing just how dark it is. Even in the twilight zone, you've got this dusky dark light and then none at all in the midnight zone. Um, it, you know, it makes sense that being able to make uh, light for animals to produce their own light, um, there's clearly a great uh, selective pressure for that. So, you know, life needs, you know, is finding really useful and important things to do with that light. So, I mean, one of the um, one of the leading experts, um, Steve Haddock, who is a bioluminescent expert, he, he refers to these ideas as to why um, so much light is made. He, he refers to them as just so stories because we have, you know, we have really good theories for how animals in the deep might use light for hunting, uh, you know, maybe to see in the dark. Actually, there are some flashlight fish which seem to have lights facing forwards from their face under their eyes, which could well be illuminating what they're looking at. Um, a lot of the theories involve escaping from predators, you know, throw a mouthful of, of, of glowing goo in the face of something that's trying to eat you. And it's most likely going to be fairly, fairly shocked and confused and it'll give you a second to scarper and scram out of the way. Um, but the reason he calls them just so stories is that we we have very few, at least on record, um, examples or on camera, if you like, examples of this actually happening, of an animal behaving naturally in its environment, switching on its lights at will to do what it is that it does with them. We know mostly about these bioluminescent animals because these are ones that have been brought up very carefully to the surface. You can keep them for a while in, in laboratories and various things you can do to them. You can prod them with chemicals. You can just physically prod them. Um, you can even flash a light at some of them and they will flash back at you. So we know these things make light in those ways, but it's seeing them behaving naturally is is really difficult, especially these lights are not very bright. So when you're down in a submersible with the big headlights on, um, that that bioluminescence is often not obvious. So it's it requires really great technologies, which are just coming through, actually. And people at, them, at uh, Monterey Bay Research um, Institute in California are working on that, um, on very high sensitivity cameras to be able to pick up, perhaps, you know, switch the lights off of a submersible, maybe use red light and try and detect animals using their lights in their environment so we can understand more. Are we right? Are, are these theories right? Are, are we, have we guessed correctly in terms of how these lights are used? Um, and I think we're going to see a lot more of those stories coming out or proving probably to be true, but um, learning more about what those bioluminescence um, abilities are actually for with these um, amazing new ways of seeing into the deep. And I, I can't wait to find out what it's going to be super cool. I mean, everything glows. Corals glow. I mean, sea cucumbers glow, fish glow, shrimp glow. Everything is somehow shining a light at something else, whether it's to say, hey, come here, whether it's to say, leave me alone. <laughs> All sorts of possibilities are out there. You, you also tell a story of how it is that creatures are able to perceive light, the, the, the vision, the vision of these animals. If, and apparently this has to do with, um, you know, seeing a, a broad range of color potentially. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things I think maybe it was a, a clue to perhaps to the fact that there's a lot of light making going on in the deep ocean. When we find, you know, we have found for, for a long time um, animals living in the deep that have functioning eyes. They have, you know, really good eyes. Um, in contrast that to animals we'd find on land in very dark places like in caves. And often it will be fish and other animals that have either lost the ability to see or they've actually lost their eyes entirely. You get blind fish and all sorts of things. Um, and, you know, an eyesight is... Um, it's something that requires a lot of energy. So if you can't see anything, then, you know, often it, it happens that evolution takes you down a pathway, to, you know, leads down a pathway towards losing that, that organ because it's kind of useless. Um, but that hasn't happened in the deep ocean. And so that is a kind of a clue to say, well, maybe there is something to see down there. And, and you know, and that definitely is the case. And we found, you know, scientists have found all sorts of 
organisms, animals living through the deep ocean with the most exquisite vision. It like more it really blowing anything terrestrial, I would say, out of the water. Um, you know, we've got fish that have um so, you know, dozens of different types of rod pigments in their eyes. These little things called silver, um, spiny silver fins that live down in the twilight zone. And these rod pigments, we have them. Um, and it's for, for dim light vision, but we only have one type. So that's why at night, when the, when, the, when the light is low, humans have pretty much monochromatic vision. We can't really make out colors in a dim light. Um, but these guys have a whole bunch of different types of these rods, which they can then use to compare different wavelengths. And studies have shown that they actually um, are focusing in, if you like, on the blues and greens of the wavelengths of the rainbow. And that's because that's the most common color that bioluminescent uh, light is produced in. So they are like tuning in their vision to the lights that are generally going off around them, these fire, these animal-made fireworks down in the deep ocean. And so they can make out really, care, you know, really distinctly figure out just very slightly different colors of blues and greens down there. Whereas we might just see a, 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 a sort of white flash. We wouldn't be able to make it out in that intensity um, in any kind of color. Um, there also, I should mention these amazing amphipods, these, these cousins of shrimp which live in the, uh, in the open uh, sea down in the deep ocean and they have 32 retinas now we have two one in each eye and that's it these guys have 32 in each eye connected by fiber optic cables and and we think they do that to be able to detect these very dim flashes of bioluminescent light um and and they do i mean just it's like a whole reinvention of how to see you know these like these eyes are absolutely um extraordinary and uh, and really showing how, again, how the physical conditions of the deep sea can really lead to these amazing adaptations for survival and, and for thriving um, when there's only some very dim lights, but it's, you know, useful to be able to see it if you can. I would like for you maybe to contextualize all of this life that's happening down there within the broader uh, you know, ecosystem. And, and, and this has to do with uh, deep below the water, you've got uh, some pretty hot earth. And there's a story here to be told about uh, how creatures are metabolizing and, and getting their energy, and and they do it uh, sans photosynthesis. I mean, there's there's a chemosynthesis I understand that takes the place of photosynthesis, and 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 uh, there's kind of a chemical story of of how animals are doing this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this for me is one of the the stories that we've learnt about life uh, from the deep ocean, which really uh, has, when it, when we first discovered this, when it was first discovered about 40 years ago, it really, it blew the minds of biologists. Um, because up until that point, it was generally, well, it was assumed that, that life uh, on Earth, and as far as we know, life in the universe so far, depends on that sunlight. It's the energy coming from the sun that's uh, powering photosynthesis in plants and seaweeds and things. And that's the basis of all the food chains. So that's where all the energy was coming from biological life as far as we knew. And then deep sea geologists actually were the first to dive down in submersibles down to uh, very great depths in the Pacific Ocean um, to investigate uh, these geological features which they had uh, discovered called hydrothermal vents. And this is where um, these are yeah, basically hot springs forming very far down at the cracks of tectonic plates down in the ocean. We've got scorching hot water pouring out of them, much hotter than springs on land because all the pressure of the water means it doesn't boil. So we're talking hundreds of degrees. Um, toxic uh, fluids pouring out of the seabed, um, incredibly high pressure, very hot, not the sort of place you would imagine life uh, at all to thrive. And yet there they were and they looked out the window and couldn't believe their eyes. I mean, these were geologists who you know, weren't there for life. They were there for rocks, but they saw just the most extraordinary ecosystems, giant tube worms, six feet long, uh, clams the size of dinner plates. And this was just the beginning. I mean, since then, people have been um, exploring hydrothermal vents all through the oceans and finding everyone has a new and just strange creatures living on them. Yeti crabs with hairy arms, uh, sock creatures, uh, purple sock creatures, we call them, which do look like a, basically a, a purple tube sock that's been thrown onto the uh, the seabed. Um, all sorts of, uh, you know, snails with metal shells, just weird, weird things living on these vents. And, you know, besides all of that, which is wonderful, what that discovery led to was this new insight into a different way 
for life to exist on Earth. And that is this thing called chemosynthesis. I call it the dark alternative to photosynthesis. I mean, it is a similar sort of process involving basically taking carbon dioxide and converting that into sugars to the basis of food for the rest of the food chain. Um, only instead of using energy from the sun, these uh, ecosystems are based on microbes that can do this with chemical energy. They're taking chemicals that are gushing up in these hydrothermal vents through the, the seabed, mostly methane and hydrogen. Um, uh, methane and hydrogen sulfide, and using that as a source of energy. The chemical bonds basically within those chemicals are used to fix carbon dioxide and make make sugars. And these microbes live all over these vents. Some things eat them. There are a lot of these animals that have those microbes, micro uh, bacteria actually living inside them. There's a lot of symbiosis going on with uh, these um, microbes basically just um, happily living inside a tube worm or in the fur of a yeti crab. Um, that's uh, keeping them in just in the right place. They need to be nice and close to these uh, these vents, not too close. They get scorched, but a uh, nice supply of chemicals. And in return, those animals feed off those microbes. So it's a chemical source of energy that we just didn't know about. And I think f for me, one of the just really exciting reasons that, you know, it kind of just opens up possibilities of what life could be, maybe on other planets as well. Here we are thinking it has to be a planet with a sun, you know, with a source of energy. That's That's what life is about. And here... Is a, is a whole ecosystem we've discovered, a whole string of ecosystems that live in the dark, completely disconnected from sunlight. So maybe there's more out in the, you know, elsewhere in the universe. By the way, there are hydrothermal vents we know on different, different planets and different moons. Um, Saturn's moon Enceladus, Jupiter's moon Europa, they have, we think those have hydrothermal vents. So who knows what's going yeah, on there, but yeah. maybe something quite exciting. Well, the darkness that we've talked about so far has to do with the absence of sunlight, but there's a different kind of darkness. Darkness is a metaphor for the perils that are faced by these creatures and life down in, in the depths. I'm talking about Plastic waste, raw sewage, oil spills, radioactivity, you know, even deep sea mining. Um, you address this, and it's a sad story. And I did not even know that there was trawling that happens deep, deep in the sea. I had assumed trawling for fish was something that was kind of closer to the surface. But um, these interventions, uh, what do you make of it all? Yeah, it's it's a sad story, isn't it? Um I guess we might just assume that the deep ocean is so big and so remote that it's, you know, un, out of reach of human impacts or, or you know, we wouldn't bother going there. I mean, in terms of the pollution, I guess it's not really a surprise that plastic ends up in the deep ocean because plastic is everywhere now. And that's the, the, the really depressing truth that we're uncovering is it's, you know, it's in the air, it's in Arctic ice, it's at the bottom of the deepest ocean trench, you know, it's down there in the Mariana Trench. So plastic is everywhere. But yeah, the kind of the active intervention in the deep, the active exploitation of the deep is shocking. Um, you know, there seems to be very little, well, why very little good reason for exploiting the deep ocean. We're talking certainly with fishing, a lot of the animals that would be targeted and are being targeted by some deep sea trawling are, are just the kind of things that really aren't suited well for anything, any kind of sustainable exploitation. These animals can live for an incredibly long time. One of the key species I write about is this thing called the orange ruffy. And they, we now know, can live for 250 years. These are not especially surprising looking fish. They sort of sit on a plate. There they are. But they you know, live for centuries, probably don't mature until they're in their 40s. Um, and yet, and they can be scooped up um, by in their millions from underwater mountains where they congregate when they do eventually get around to spawning, and their numbers can be very quickly depleted with very little recovery in the in the subsequent decades. We've seen very very little recovery of these animals in places where they've been heavily hunted through the Pacific and other parts of the world. So really, you know, there's not a good reason for going into the deep ocean. My my take on it is that if we can sort ourselves out in the shallow seas. And, and we know how. We have the science. We know what we would need to do to sustainably fish the surface seas and to provide food for an awful lot of people. If we can figure that out and do that, get the politics in there, get the economics in there, we would have no need to go into the deep ocean and to make changes to a place we're still learning about um, and leave alone those species that really aren't suited at all well to this kind of exploitation. You know, it's it's not looking good for any of these, whether that we're talking about even mid-water animals, there's talk about 
fishing the twilight zone as well for these tiny fish that swim through the twilight zone. Even that comes with with risks we don't fully understand that could affect the climate. They're pulling carbon down into the deep. We don't want to touch that. Let's leave that alone. And yeah, let's figure out the fisheries we already have um, up in the surface seas. And, and I think we can do that. And it would mean we could just leave the deep alone. It seems to me, and you can help me with this, um, it seems to me that our lack of restraint in uh, what we have done to exploit the oceans uh, comes just hand in glove with a lack of regulation. I don't know if it's a chicken and an egg story, but uh, we're not restrained if we're not regulating it. And under cloak of darkness, a lot of things can happen that nobody will ever know about. And and the deeper you go, it seems that, that people can behave with near impunity. Am I so wrong? No, I mean, you are. You're, you're right. Exactly. I think, I mean, the oceans in general suffer from this, this life, you know, this, this eternal problem of being out of sight and out of mind. And the deep ocean is just the, you know, the ultimate um, place where we, we can't see, you know, without these amazing technologies. And even then it's hard to really, you know, gather what the impacts of all of this will be and understand that. So, yeah, I mean, it is, um, it's a huge part of our planet. It's very hard to go there and see it and understand the impacts and see the impacts. Whenever going to stand back and look at it like we can uh, you know those terrible scenes from aerial footage or satellite imagery of say forests being cut down you know we can look at how much we've lost of the amazon rainforest we aren't really ever going to get the equivalent in the deep ocean it is so hidden and yet the same levels of destruction if not more i would argue could take place especially if we're talking about things like deep sea mining these mines could open up over just unthinkably huge swathes of the deep ocean um to exploit metals down there, which some people want to get their hands on. And I don't think we're ever going to have that visual picture of the impact that's going to have. All we have and what we have to rely on and and what we need to give time to and resources to is for the scientists to be able to say why these, you know, learn about why these ecosystems and these places are so important for the health of the planet and what might happen if they are disturbed. Um, And I can only hope that, you know, this lack of regulation can be changed and that we can make a different decision about how we use the deep ocean compared to perhaps the rest of the planet and decide that it's this place that is too special, too different, potentially just too important for the health of the planet from climate regulation to nutrient cycling to uh, carbon sequestration, all sorts of things like that. Those things are far too important to mess with. Um, just besides the fact that the deep is so important for biology and for life on earth. And, uh, you know, we want to why not keep it that way? Why not just keep this wondrous place full of all these extraordinary creatures? Um, one of the parts of the planet that we don't interfere with and we don't exploit for our own gains. It's not why it's there. We, we can give its own right to exist just anyway, just despite anything we might gain from it. So I think that the deep is, it's a very sad story, but I think we do have the possibility of making really strong decisions to, to change our ways as humanity and, and make a better choice for the planet. Um, it's still not, it's definitely still not too late. Her book is titled The Brilliant Abyss, Exploring the Majestic Hidden Life of the Deep Ocean and the Looming Threat that Imperils It. Helen Scales, thanks for being with us. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. The deepest parts of the ocean, they may be fascinating, but very difficult to access for us humans. All kinds of physics and technical problems. Our brains and our bodies don't like it down there. So we have been getting robots to do some of that work for us, and now maybe even cyborgs. Mechanizing jellyfish for deep ocean exploration, is that possible? Might become a thing. We're going to consider that when we come back to Constant Wonder. Stay with us. You're listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. If you want to explore the deepest depths of the sea, you're going to need something more than just scuba gear. Even a military submarine is not up to the task. What you generally need is robots or maybe one day cyborgs, animal-machine hybrids. Are we going to figure out how to do that? Maybe with, oh, say, a jellyfish to do the exploration for us? Well, here's part of a conversation I had with Nicole Shu, who is a Ph.D. candidate in bioengineering at Stanford University, who is on the task. 
And you can kind of think of the jellyfish as uh, like a circular piece of jello, right? Anything you stick into it is going to fall out immediately. So we looked at different types of glues. There's a surgical glue called histocryl flexible, which is um, used in, in prenatal surgeries. And I think that's really great for that purpose, but you really need to dry out the surface a lot before the glue can really stick. Um, so it didn't work for our purposes for sticking anything to the animals. And we also tried this muscle-based adhesive, muscle as in like the type of muscles that are sea creatures, the type that we eat, not um, like going to the gym and getting swole muscles. But that also really didn't work very well just because you had to clear off the surface. Um, and so instead, we decided to stick the electronics directly into the animal tissue by using a wooden pin. And this is actually really nice because uh, the wooden pin has microscopic barbs that hook into the tissue very well. And I, I'm glad that you reiterated this in the beginning, but the jellyfish don't have a brain. They don't have pain receptors. They're, they're not stressed out in any way. And if they were stressed out, they would be secreting a lot of mucus. And we don't see any evidence of that. So we're, we're not hurting the animals by doing this. How big is the device? Is it the size of, you know, a little small battery for a camera or something? Kind of. It's a, it's about two centimeters in diameter. So you can think of it as uh, the, the shape of a coin or the size of a coin. And the animals that we use vary between 10 centimeters to 20 centimeters, um, possibly like a dinner plate. Yeah. And, and I want to get into the, the reason somebody would be doing this in, in the first place, but hold off on that for just a little bit. I'm still okay. just interested in the, you attach it, you said a wooden pin with that, that has little, probably microscopic barbs for adhesion. Yeah. 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 So we actually just, I'm going to let you in on a secret. We just use a toothpick and it, <laughs> it feels very smooth to us, but it has these microscopic barbs in it. If you look at it under a microscope. And some, so you attach the device to the toothpick, the toothpick to the jellyfish. Exactly. We have all of our electronics in this waterproof housing, and then we stick a toothpick to that and embed that device um, in the center of the animal. And then we have electrodes going out that embed into the sides of the animal where the muscle is. So we're kind of controlling it the way a cardiac pacemaker would control a heart. And is this device going to go out into the ocean on this jellyfish or in this jellyfish and be retrieved later? Or is this all about just uh, uploading the information to some satellite somewhere? Oh, absolutely. We would want to retrieve the device. Um, we thought very carefully about this. And, and at the moment, our, uh, our design iteration isn't at the point where we're actually deploying these robots out into the ocean to collect things for us without monitoring them very closely. But we just want to be very wary that we're not creating e-waste or any plastic waste in the ocean. So um, I, I think oh, so it's that's really the important. reason that's the reason mm -hmm. for retrieval is not to pollute. Yes, exactly. And we do want to incorporate more biodegradable electronics and, and biocompatible uh, plastics in the future as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the the idea, I don't know, do whales and sharks and dolphins eat jellyfish? I, I think that's an open question right now. Um, lots of scientists are trying to figure out what actually eats the jellyfish just because there are so many jellyfish in the ocean and there are only increasing numbers given um, changes in the climate over time. So, yeah, oh, that's oh, still an open There's question a spike there. in jellyfish population? Oh, yes. So, um there is. With, with climate change and increasing temperatures and pHs, jellyfish seem to be doing particularly well, particularly well with all these changes. So yeah. now, that is a consideration. Have you been able to ascertain that by implanting this device, it doesn't in any way compromise whatever functions a jellyfish has, its swimming, its behavior, all of that sort of stuff? Uh, the jellyfish seem to be to be doing fine with the device embedded. There's an open question of whether the animals can still feed. And so we haven't uh, conducted these tests overnight using our entire self-contained system. So that, that is still an open question, but there's no reason really that the animals would be, uh, would be doing worse with our device over time. And we are very conscious to let the animals rest as well. So in the future, we could have the animals swimming to a certain location and then uh, turn it off so the animal can do its own thing and collect its data naturally where it would want to go. And then we could turn it back on to retrieve it later on. Now, I will, I promise, we're going to get to the reasons behind any of this. <laughs> uh, but but I yeah. still am so, I'm so interested in the idea, do you have to go out and find them and implant them? Or can you farm them somehow and raise them in tanks? That's a really good question. So all of our experiments so far have been done with lab animals. So we get animals from Cabrillo Marine Aquarium. And they're very generous enough to donate them to us. 
Um, and then we implant the devices in them and conduct all the experiments in the lab. So these are lab grade species, but uh, the nice thing about this particular species of moon jellyfish is that they're found they're found in a variety of different locations. So we could go on go down to very deep depths or very salty waters or not so salty waters and collect the animals, implant them, and then send those out into their own natural environment. So we're we're also not introducing more jellyfish to a certain area. Now, this is not like the experimentations that happen during wartime where somebody's trying to uh, gather intelligence for their purposes on land or, you know, trying to find U-boats no. or anything. This is about scientific exploration and learning. And mm -hmm. uh, why would this mode of transportation for a, 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 you know, a device, why would this be preferable to strapping it on some other animal? That's a really good question. So when we think about different bio-inspired uh, aquatic vehicles, you can you can either create something that mimics how a fish swims or a stingray, for example, and those have a lot of different advantages as well. So fish are very maneuverable and very fast. Manta rays have incredible turning capabilities. And jellyfish are really nice, not only because they're found in, in this huge variety of environments, but because they're very energy efficient. So uh, I don't know if you want to get into this metric of energy efficiency called cost of transport, but you can kind of think of it as like the opposite of miles per gallon. So a low cost of transport is really good. Jellyfish have the lowest cost of transport of all the animals. And so we can really use them as a way to create more low power robots that we can send out into the ocean. And you're, you're absolutely right. The, the main uh, advantage of our system and what we really want to do is use this robot in conjunction with a lot of existing technology technologies just to expand the per performance portfolio of um, what we can actually monitor in the ocean. Now, just a moment ago, we were talking about sending out albatrosses with devices on them, and they have an incredible range. Mm -hmm. I know nothing about the range of a jellyfish, and I'm hoping you do. Mm -hmm. Do you? Uh, <laughs> Well, it depends. What do you mean by range? Like there's yeah. Can you can you put one of these you know Stanford's there on you know near the Pacific West Coast and you you put it on a jellyfish? Is it going to end up near Korea? That's a good question. I don't think people have uh, tracked where individual jellyfish go, but I think that's that's an open question. Um, they do migrate lots of different places, and they are primarily carried by currents in the ocean. So we, if we deployed these, uh, these biohybrid robots out into certain areas where we know that the currents are going to carry them in different places, we could really expand where we can monitor the ocean. So there are a lot of really good ways of monitoring the ocean right now. There are different types of underwater vehicles that are really fast and maneuverable, um, but those can, those can still require a lot of energy. And so we see a, a biohybrid jellyfish robot as advantageous because we want to measure things like pH and temperature and salinity in different areas of the ocean that these existing technologies can't necessarily reach. Um, but in addition to that, we could put cameras on these animals and just go around and see what is the natural animal behavior. So are there new species of, of underwater creatures out there? And we know that there most likely are, but you know, what are, the, what are the ways that we can expand how we monitor what's going on in the ocean, whether that's taking samples of the water for us uh, and tracking changes in, in the climate. So are temperatures actually increasing over time in certain areas? Or if the, if the water is becoming saltier or more acidic, what's going on with, with different things um, in the ecosystem? So I think this is another tool that can be, that can be really used um, to monitor all these processes. Nicole Shu trained in bioengineering at Stanford University. Constant wonder. Our show is a production of BYU Radio.